Well, it's great to see you this morning. Let's grab our Bibles, and uh, we have a very brief period of time today that we're going to be focusing on Luke chapter 6. So take your Bibles, if you would. Uh, Actually, Luke chapter 5, verse 17 through verse 26. By the way, if you have your Bibles, uh, would you hold them up and say, Jesus? Would you do that? Amen. Please turn them to Luke chapter 5, beginning of verse 17 today. The title of the message is, Who is Sufficient for This? And please stand as we uh, get ready to read God's Word together. Can't wait for Easter. We're working hard planning for the Easter services. And uh, as Andy has said, really, this is a great opportunity for our, for our entire congregation to be able to reach out to two or three people and bring them on one of those three identical services on Saturday and on Sunday. I will be chopping the cross um, in the services, same thing each service. The cross and the resurrection will all be dealt with on that service. I'm looking forward to combining those two. So remember, no Friday, Good Friday service, no Friday night service here, but uh, 5 p.m. on Saturday in this room, 9 and 11 on Sunday in this room, the same service, and we encourage you to bring someone. It's going to be a phenomenal, phenomenal day. The title of the message today is, Who is Sufficient for This? And I want you to begin reading with me in verse 17. The verses 12 through 16 are about a leper that has been healed by Jesus. And we won't cover that text today, but just suffice it to say that Jesus has reached out and touched one of the untouchables, one of those that is hideously disfigured, grotesque in appearance, uh, unable to find any relief or any change in his body condition. And Jesus reaches out, hugs him literally, touches him, and heals him. And now the word is getting out. So when Jesus moves into a house to begin teaching, the crowds have come. Verse 17, one day he was teaching and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. And some men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed and they were trying to bring him in and set him down in front of him. But not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down through the tiles with a stretcher into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven you. The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, who is this man that speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sin but God alone? But Jesus, aware of their reasoning, answered and said to them, why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is it easier to do? Say, your sins have been forgiven you, or to say, get up and walk. But so that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up and pick up your stretcher and go home. Immediately he got up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And they were all struck with astonishment and began glorifying God. And they were filled with fear saying, we have seen remarkable things today. Father, today I ask that you give us wisdom and insight into this text into the life of Jesus, and into life as it ought to be now. Father, speak to us today in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Please be seated. Great story, so awesome in so many ways today. To boil down into what Jesus is doing with the religious leaders of that day is to kind of define our whole series that we're calling Rogue. This is the Jesus series as a whole, but this season in his life is the rogue series. This is where 
imperfect religion meets a perfect man. Now they see him as rock. They see him as having things out of culture, out of shape. He is simply coming in to represent fully who God is. As a matter of fact, in John chapter one, verse 18, the Bible says, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who's in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. So Jesus has come to fully reveal, to fully explain, to fully show what God's intention has been all along. And it's an amazing thing that Jesus has come to do. And he's come doing it with the power of healing, with the power and authority of teaching. So as we see this story unfold, we see three things that really come to the surface that we must walk away with today. Three things I want you to know about that Jesus is revealing by what he does here and what he says here. First of all, teaching should transform. Teaching should transform. The Bible says the who's who of religious leaders were there that day. And in verse 17, it says some Pharisees, some teaching, teachers of the law sitting there literally from every village. It's almost as though they've sent delegations to listen to Jesus teach. These scribes and these Pharisees are people who have begun to move away from what God originally intended worship to be. They've moved away from the heart and they've moved it to the outer obeying of the law. Now these Pharisees and scribes had come not really to learn from Jesus, but they'd come to begin to pick apart what he was saying and doing because he was seen as a renegade, as rogue, as someone that was trying to turn their religion upside down. In fact, John MacArthur talks about these Pharisees and says this in one of his commentaries, the Pharisees had become the dominant force in Judaism. They were faithful to scripture in belief, but their zeal for the law caused them to become focused on rituals and the external keeping of the law. They abandoned the true religion of the heart for mere outward behavior, modification, and ritual, leading Jesus to denounce their pseudo-spirituality. Let me tell you what, God is always after your heart. He's not always looking for you just to check the list off of do's and don'ts. He wants your heart, and Jesus came to ask men to follow him. And these religious leaders were looking at him and criticizing all that he was saying and doing. Now, as we move on through chapter 5 into chapter 6, Jesus is going to come back, and he's going to say some things to these religious leaders that are difficult and hard. I want you to look ahead with me in Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, verse 46, Jesus begins to come down very hard on these particular kinds of leaders. He says in verse 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when a flood occurred, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who has heard and not acted accordingly it's like a man who built his house on the ground without any foundation. And the torrent burst against it and immediately it collapsed. And the ruin of that house was great. Jesus confronted them later on, essentially saying, you are not really able to call me Lord if you do not see my word, my teaching as something to be obeyed. It's really amazing how insidious, how deceptive, and how easy it is for this kind of a mindset to creep into the church today, years after the Messiah has made it very plain, God is after your heart and not just the outward signs of religion. 
As a matter of fact, it becomes dangerous for us to know teaching and understand truth and not obey truth. The truth is churches today are filled with people who are cultural Christians. The only indication of Christianity is that they go to church. Their lives are not transformed by the Word, not because the Word is not available, but because they choose to listen to it as something to learn, as something to add to their knowledge, as something to shape their religion, but not something to change their hearts. And Jesus would say to you, or he would say to me, just what he said to them in that day, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I command that you should do? If you're not going to obey me, how is there any indication that you're truly following me? Because after all, I'm not just another religious leader. I am the God of the universe. I am the Messiah fulfilling the promise, and I'm here to show you how to have life. I'm convinced today that so many people don't have life because they're not following the giver of life. So many people don't sense forgiveness and change because they're not following the one who brings that change. Jesus is simply saying, The Word should transform. Teaching should transform. Let me say this today. We should all love good Bible teaching. Amen? We should love good Bible teaching. I love good Bible teaching. I get on the radio sometimes. Sometimes I listen to podcasts. I I listen to teachers that I love to hear teach the Word of God. But if I listen to them and I'm convicted about things I need to change and I don't change, then I stand under condemnation for having received a word I refuse to obey. And the Bible says that's a very dangerous place to be. You see, the deception of listening to great great teaching or making teaching an end in itself or making the idea of Bible knowledge an end in itself is overwhelming. Let me share with you some dangers of non-transforming Christianity. If we don't see what we hear from God's Word, what we read from God's Word, what we hear from God's teachers, if we do not see the ability to change our lives to follow Him, then our Christianity can be merely academic Christianity, where we argue over the semantics of Scripture, where we go into the finer aspects of doctrine, where we write books one way or another, spending hours arguing over very finite parts of Scripture, but are not concerned about life changing. Our Christianity can become academic. It can also become legalistic, where we figure out just what we're willing to do and what we're able to do. And so we live life by these moral platitudes. I'm I'm not willing to be like the worst of these on this earth, but I'm also not willing to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And we have an outward form of legalism without heart change. Or we can become those cultural Christians that show up every Sunday morning or most Sunday mornings, and we allow ourselves to be moved a little bit by inspiration or maybe information, but we don't really see it as a revelation of God's Word that changes our minds, our our perspectives, and our attitudes on on a day-by-day basis. And finally, we can become deceptive Christians where we are hearers of the Word and not doers. The Bible says in James chapter 1, don't be hearers of the Word and not doers, because if you hear the Word and don't do the Word, You deceive yourselves and the truth is not in you. And so today when we hear teaching, Jesus has come to the scene to be able to say to all those teachers gathered there, for those religious leaders, teaching must transform. What we learn is not just about history. It's not just about knowledge. It's not about cute moral expressions and tweetable comments. It's about surrendering to God the Messiah. Friend, the last time you heard the word of God and it convicted your heart, 
about, about a certain matter in your life, how did you respond to the word? Did you allow that conviction to seep into your life? Did you feel a sense of grief? Were you willing to say, I must change in order to follow Christ? That's what teaching should do. It should transform and it has power to do that. But this, this message, this lesson also says our faith can affect others. In the middle of this whole story is an amazing thing of these four men coming in with the one paralytic. And Jesus speaks immediately to them when they break their way through the ceiling. Now, that's a great story in itself. It's a dramatic intervention into a time when Jesus is teaching. Now, think about what that must have been like. Jesus is in a house. It must have been like a large living room. People from all over the area are there, in addition to his disciples. And uh, there's no room for anyone else at that point. They've come early. Jesus has stood up. Apparently, he's teaching. And all of there, some with good motives, some with bad motives. Some want to pick him apart. Some want to hear exactly what he has to say. Some want to falsely accuse him of blasphemy, which, which they will a little later in the story. But there are four men that came with an entirely different purpose. They came believing that God could change their friend. And yet, there was no room for them to get in. So there they are with this pallet, carrying this man, cannot get in the door, but that did not deter them. As a matter of fact, it probably egged them on. These were men that refused to give up. They wouldn't give up, they wouldn't take no, they wouldn't stop believing, they wouldn't be denied. So since they couldn't get into the doors or the windows, they go up the stairway to the top of the house and they, they literally break him through the tiles that are on the ceiling. Now, the ceiling tiles from that day are not what we know to be ceiling tiles in this day, but these houses were beamed or burned in the top, and uh, bridging across those beams were flat uh, tiles, heavy flat tiles of stone or stone and mud. Um, and so those, those were what was holding the roof up, and they were what were keeping the elements from coming in. And those men got up there on that roof, and they began to dig. Now, if you're in the room and you're listening to Jesus teach, and you're hanging on every word, or you're about to interrupt him with some critical comment the way the Pharisees and the scribes were about to do, and all of a sudden, the silence of that moment, the quietness except for the voice of Jesus is broken through by somebody hammering in the, in the roof, in the ceiling. And all of a sudden, something begins to fall down from the top, maybe some straw, maybe some mud, and maybe some bits of stone began to fall down on the group that are listening to Jesus and they're all been out of shape. They're wondering what's about to happen. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like that. There are those of us who uh, remember our fathers falling through the attic into the living room at various times when working up in the attic. Never happened to me. But I've heard of it happening all the time. They step right through and fall right through between the, the rafters there and fall into the living room. This is essentially what happened. And as that hole is opened up, these four men lower their friend in front of the presence of Jesus. And there Jesus stops the teaching and he commands the scene for a moment. And he does the unthinkable. He does not first heal the man, but he forgives the man. Of all the things Jesus could have said or done at that moment, that was the most unexpected one of all. And he's got a reason behind that, but before we get to that, I want to ask you to look at the faith of those in the room. First, I want you to look at the faith of all those leaders who had seen miracles, who had come for some reason other than to follow Jesus or to impact others. 
and no one made room. There must have been a great attempt made by the four men to get into the room in the first place. But these impotent legalistic scribes made no move to make room for this man. I want you to take secondly a look at the faith of the four men. The four men who brought their friend. As one commentator said, they had to be persistent in their faith. They had to have creative faith. They did not simply pray about it, but they put their feet to their prayers. They didn't permit the difficult circumstances to discourage them. They worked together. They dared to do something creative and something different, and Jesus rewarded their efforts. You think Jesus was pleased with their faith? He absolutely was, because the Bible says that Jesus saw their faith in verse 20 and responded by saying, friend, your sins are forgiven you. Let me say some things about our faith. The faith that we hold in Jesus, the faith that we hold in God, is not only for us, but for others. So important for us to get that. In the same way that Jesus said, the Son of Man has not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. The same way we recognize that Jesus didn't come for himself, but he came for us. Same reason that, that God gave his only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We're called to have faith in God, not just for ourselves, but for others. It first begins in us. It first begins when we come to Christ and say, I need you so badly to forgive me of sin, to heal me of my past, to give me new life, to give me new purpose. It begins with us. And it's all about us being rescued from darkness and rescued from deadness and rescued from lostness and rescued from the depravity that all of us are in. And it first begins with us, but it doesn't end there. You see, once you and I have faith in Jesus Christ, our faith also works to help us bring others to Christ. After all, if he can forgive you, can he forgive your neighbor? After all, if he can, if he can salvage your life and give you new life, can he give somebody else new life and salvage their past as well? But faith affects how we see others, how we respond to others, and even how God works in others' lives. Now you let that sink in for just a minute, but these four men of faith lowered their friend in front of Jesus on a climactic, dramatic day. Then Jesus saw that man and he forgave him of sin in front of everyone. And then as you know the story, also healed him from being paralyzed to being able to walk. They did all that they could to bring their friend to Jesus. What will we do with the faith that we've been given? I know this. I know when I look around at my life and I look at my past and I look at how God has worked in my life, I am so grateful for what he's done in my life, so thankful for how many times he's rescued me, how many times he's forgiven me, how many times he's given me direction in life. I mean, it's incredible. I could write book after book about God's gracious intervention in my life, and I'm thankful for that, but it should not and cannot end there. It cannot end there because all of God's kingdom is not about him doing something to me and for me. It's about how he has done something to me, for me, and now through me. And the same is true of your life. 
You have so much to be grateful to God for, so much he's delivered you from, so much he's provided for in your life, but it doesn't end there. It doesn't stop there. It's there so that you can also point out to other people, this is where I received that forgiveness. This is where I received that healing. This is how I found direction in my life. I want to bring you to the Jesus that changed my life. You see, your faith affects how you even look at other people and how you perceive them, and how you respond to them, and how God works in your life to them. Years ago, when I first pastored in, in Oklahoma, I was pastoring a small church, the very first church I pastored. And one of the first men I met there at that church was a man named Jack Smith. Jack was this big old robust guy that had a huge personality, and he was a manager of a grocery store about a mile from our church. And I uh, got to know him pretty well, Jack was one of those guys back, back in the day, we used to call him a soul winner, a soul winner. Anybody remember those terms, soul winner, you know? He was a soul winner. He would, he would share the gospel with almost anybody. Today we call it having gospel conversations. That's a little bit uh, better term today. We want to have gospel conversations with everyone. But Jack was one of those guys that had conversations with all of his employees, and one night about 2 o'clock in the morning, Jack called my home, which was very rare and when I answered the phone, he said, I need you to come to the store. Something tragic has happened. And I remember getting to the store a little later in the morning. The police cars were still there. Three of his employees who were in the store stocking overnight were herded into a, a walk-in freezer, gunned down and cold blood and killed. And Jack was heartbroken about it. And uh, he was consoling his employees and the family, and I was there to help the families of these three individuals. And all day long we did that. And that night Jack came to my office and he said, you know, Pastor, the thing that hurts me more than anything else about this, is I know everybody's not guaranteed a chance to live forever. Everybody's going to die at some point. We did everything we could with security, and we did all we could. But he said there was one thing I didn't do. I said, well, that's Jack. What is that? He said, those three people. I'd had conversations with two of them and told them about Jesus. But there was a third one that for some reason I just never told about Christ. And I'm sure that person has never known Christ. I'm sure he is not a believer. He died separated from Christ and will be separated forever and ever. He said, Pastor, I'm going to change the way I do things in life. I'm going to make sure that I never let anybody come through my life without inviting them to worship with me or without inviting them to have a conversation about Jesus Christ. I watched Jack Smith over the next uh, six or eight years. I watched him even after I left and became pastor in Texas in another church. I watched him lead person after person after person to faith in Christ. He would never let someone go without knowing he'd had some conversation with them, pointing them to Jesus Christ. And, and a matter, matter of fact, Jack Smith's faith grew to such large proportions that uh, God used him in amazing ways in large numbers of people's lives. Because Jack was so grateful for having been forgiven. Jack was so grateful for having eternal life. He wanted other people to have eternal life as well. And so he began to see people through those eyes of faith, respond to people through those eyes of faith, and believe God for others' lives through eyes of faith. These four men they exemplify that and so should we. You grateful for what God's done in your life? Say amen, would you? You know somebody that is far from God? Say, I know. You know who they are. Maybe you've written their names on the walls. Maybe you have somebody that you interact with every day at work. Maybe it's somebody in your family. 
whoever it is, if you go to the great length that these four men did, if you follow their example, if you just do what they did and be creative and be determined to be diligent and refuse to say no and refuse to give up and pray for them and call on the Lord for them, one day you may introduce them to Jesus Christ yourself. What a great day that is. Faith can affect others. Your faith can and should affect others. And then thirdly, I want you to see today, maybe the main point of this whole story is that forgiveness is found in one person. The Bible says that after Jesus mentioned this to the man, friend, your sins are forgiven you. Verse 21 the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sin but God alone? Great point. Nobody can forgive sin except God. So here's Jesus, the Messiah, having already said, I fulfill the call, the prophetic call of Messiahship. And he says, Now I'm going to demonstrate to you that I am God the Son by actually forgiving this man of his sins. In front of the religious leaders, Jesus gives one of the clearest signs of hope that it's not found in a religion, but in a person. Forgiveness is found there. The antidote for sin is not found in religion. It's not found in Judaism. It's not found even in the sacrificial system that God established. It's not found in legalistic real keeping, but it's found in a person. Jesus places it first in the order of his miracles and makes it clearly his responsibility. If you want forgiveness of sin, you come to Jesus and no one else. I talk to people all the time and I ask them this question. If you were to die and stand before God and he were to say, why should I let you into my heaven? What would your answer be? And I can tell you that over and over people say to me, I would tell God, that I go to the Baptist church or I go to the Catholic church or I, I've been involved in church all my life or I try to keep the Ten Commandments or the Golden Rule or I simply love God. And they believe that their forgiveness comes through a church or they believe their forgiveness comes through real keeping or they believe their forgiveness comes from not doing even worse things than they have already done or that other people are doing. And I, I delight to tell them, listen, forgiveness doesn't come from a church. A church cannot guarantee eternal life. No system can guarantee eternal life. There is only one who can forgive, only one who can give life. His name is Jesus Christ. You don't get forgiveness and salvation from a church. You get it from the forgiver. The one that destroys sin. The one that pays for sin. The one that removes sin. In this story, God's greatest concern is man's greatest need, the forgiveness of sin. It's as though Jesus is saying, I know he's paralyzed. I know he can't get off the pallet. I know he can't move his arms. I know he can't move his legs. I know he couldn't make a living if he tried. I know he can't walk. I know he can't move in any way. But this man's need is his heart. And I'm going to forgive his heart as a priority. I'm going to forgive his sins. I'm going to remove them from him and give him the gift of eternal life because that's the most important thing anyone needs, a right standing with God. And then after Jesus forgave him of his sin, then and only then did he raise him up to walk. And the truth is, if he can forgive this paralytic and heal him, he can forgive you and heal you. 
And there's no religious system. There's no priest or intermediary. There's no penance or punishments you have to pay. You just have to come to the place where you put your faith and trust in him. Now let me just tell you something that all of us need to hear today. Before we leave, I want you to let this settle in your heart, settle, settle well in your heart. If Jesus can heal the leper, and if he can raise up the paralytic, and if he can forgive the hardest-hearted sinner, then you need to get over your past and your problems and your hang-ups about religion, and you need to come to Jesus and say, if you can do that with them, you can do it with me. And no matter how burdened you are about the past, and no matter how buried you are by the consequences of past sin, and no matter how difficult the collateral damage of all the things you've said and done, when you come to Jesus Christ, there is the guarantee that he will forgive and cleanse and make a way for your life. Don't get hung up on anything else. Get to Jesus as fast as you can. Let him do exactly for you what he did to all these. And however imperfect religion is, Jesus came to reveal God's sufficiency for all that you need. Who is sufficient for all this? Jesus alone is sufficient. It's good enough for you to change your life. And if it's good enough for you to change your life, it's good enough to change the life of anybody you care about. Anybody you'll reach out to, anybody you'll bring with you. You know, in many ways, this text and this passage is very, very old-fashioned. Teaching should transform. Your faith can affect others. And Jesus is the only one that can forgive sin. Don't worry you with all that today. What do you do with the teaching of God's Word? Do you let it convict you? Do you let it sink into your heart and grab hold of you? Do you let it move you in what you do and say and how you think? Or do you quickly file it away and say, well, I now know this and I now know that. And that fills in some gaps of knowledge I didn't have and I like the way they said this or the way this or that teacher did this. Or is it something you take and you eat as though it was your very sustenance for what life ought to be? And what about your faith? Is your faith solely focused on your own personal life? And how God is working out his will in your life or does it also include others around you? Because your faith can touch other people's lives. And what about the source of forgiveness and cleansing and healing? Are you going everywhere to make sure that everything is right spiritually or just to him? There's nobody but Jesus that can take care of you. And nobody can take care of you like Jesus. He's either sufficient and you don't need to add anything to his life. Or he's not sufficient. You can try to add everything to his life and it won't amount to anything. It's Jesus plus nothing. And that's enough. It was enough for the paralytic. It was enough for the leper. It was enough for the disciples. It was enough for me. And it'll be enough for you. Would you bow your head for just a moment? Would you close your eyes? Would you ask yourself this question? Do I see teaching as something that I am willing to let transform my life? Ask yourself this question. Do I let my faith affect others? And ask yourself this question. Do I realize, do I understand fully that my forgiveness is found only in Jesus? 
I'm gonna ask our ushers, or rather our prayer partners to come to the front. They're here every week. They're gonna come and stand and face you. And they're gonna be available to pray for you. Now over these next few moments as I close in prayer, some will leave and some will stay. And if you'd like to stay, settle some of these things in your heart, please stay. There's nothing they'd love more than to spend some time in prayer with you. And then in just a moment, as we dismiss, there'll be those that walk out these doors. Perhaps today you didn't get an opportunity to give at one of these tubs. And when you leave, you can still give the normal way through those offering boxes that are out there. But let this be a day of generosity for you. And I invite you, if you're a guest today, to drop by the guest reception center where I'd love to visit with you for a few moments. Love to tell you something about what God is doing here. Let's stand together in prayer. Father, I want to thank you today for the opportunity we have to worship you. Lord, I pray that you will allow the text to just grab our hearts and speak to us today. Father, my prayer is that we would allow you to convict us as we open the Bible from day to day or as we hear teachers of your word. And Father, let it transform us as it was designed to do. Father, we also pray that you will help us remember that we can believe you for our friends. Even as we approach Easter, we can believe you for those families and those names we are reaching out to. And even as we leave today, remembering an invitation or a witness is so important. Father, I also ask you today to let every person individually experience your forgiveness and your love. I ask this in Jesus' name.